I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we are going to address an important topic for families and caregivers that people don't often talk about or don't know how to talk about. Inappropriate sexual behavior is a common symptom in people with dementia. Here to help me offer background and guidance on this topic are two special guests. Ms. Elizabeth Marcus is a writer and former architect and the author of a memoir that details her relationship with her aging parents. Dr. Martin Samuels is a neurologist and founding chair emeritus of the Department of Neurology at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you both for joining me on Dementia Matters. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure to be here, Nate. Elizabeth, your book, Don't Say a Word, will be published in May of this year. What is the book about and what inspired you to write it? In the last 10 years of my parents' lives, they spent winters in Mexico where they changed into almost unrecognizable versions of themselves. My father had been a dentist and my mother a Macy's dress buyer and they had always been sensible, savvy, and completely intolerant of mishap. These were real perfectionists and very tyrannical people. In Mexico, they threw caution to the wind. They got involved with some very strange characters, and they threw themselves into a string of madcap adventures that generally ended catastrophically. But nothing fazed them. They just laughed it off. So the the book is about my struggle to understand what was going on with my parents to sort of solve this mystery. As an only child, I did my best during this time period to protect them from themselves, and I failed miserably. I never could get my parents to listen to me, and I never could stand up to them, and that just didn't change. But in the course of the book, I do solve this mystery. I do come to understand what was behind it, and it revealed something that they had been spending their lives trying to hide. So it was very freeing for me to finally understand what was going on. That is a fantastic (laughs) teaser. I really would like to know more. Of course, our episode is not about your book specifically (laughs) and all the details, but that is a a wonderful introduction. Thank you. Um, Now, after your mother's death, your father presented you with a request that shocked you to help him find a housekeeper who would sleep with him. I'm sure this is covered in your book, but I'm hoping you could tell us what was your reaction to this request? Well, shock, I would say, basically covers it. But my father had been a real feminist. He he believed that as soon as women were running the countries of the world, we would have world peace. I mean, he, he was not in any way a womanizer. So this totally was incomprehensible to me. And also, you know, we had, I just lost my mother. He just lost his wife. I thought maybe he was in shock. So in any case, I didn't know what to make of it. And I just hoped that the women that presented themselves for the job would sort of wake him up, that he would realize this was not a plausible approach. 
Now, after your father passed away, though, you did do some extensive research into sort of your experience and in particular dementia. And what did you learn then that you wish you had known during this un unusual time for you? Well, what I learned was that what I had made of the experience, that there was some dark side to my father that I hadn't known, that there was something really shameful and um, humiliating about, you know, his proposal uh, was completely false. I, I learned that it was simply a medical symptom that he had had, you know, atrophy of the frontal lobe. And this was as meaningless in the sense of, you know, it wasn't an aspect of his character that was being revealed. It was just like you know, you have deterioration of your inner ear and you have hearing loss in old age. So it was only that. And this was hugely um, re a relief to me, a tremendous relief to me because I totally love my father. He was really my hero. And uh, this the whole episode, which went on for five years, um, finally made sense. And so what did you learn about the relationship between sex and dementia? What, what did you learn that helped you with your experience? Well, essentially what I learned is that for several thousand years, ever since people have lived long enough to have had this symptom, to have experienced this symptom in old age, what was made of it was that it was normal for older people to become preoccupied with sex. The idea of the dirty old man is as old as the Romans. And when you see this happening to your parent, that's where your mind goes. Your mind doesn't go to dementia. My father didn't have memory loss. He, in every other way, he seemed himself. I just didn't think of it. Instead, I thought the way people think oh my God, there's something about my father, you know, terrible that I didn't know. He's not the person I thought he was. And uh, that's understandable since for most of these thousands of years, no one understood brain function. But now, of course, we do. And somehow the word is, is, has not gotten out to the general population. In the dementia world, people understand this, but outside of it, they don't. And so can you share with our listeners one of the key messages in your book? Well, the key message in relation to my father and the dementia is that this is something that we have to talk about. You have to talk to, to people you know, to other members of the family, to caregivers. I finally, at the end, uh, of the worst cycle of these very strange women my father found who moved in and um, disrupted his life and broke his heart. We had two and a half years of that. I finally found a wonderful woman who, uh, who moved in. She had a black belt in karate, so I knew that she wasn't going to have trouble handling my father, but uh, her English wasn't very good, and I had been so embarrassed that I hadn't made clear to her what what she was up against. I said things to her like, um, he's going to want you to be like a wife. He doesn't respect boundaries. Anyway, she didn't know what I was talking about. And when he started to harass her, she was too embarrassed to tell me. So once we finally were, it, 
it became obvious once there was an incident where it became obvious and then we could work together, it all became manageable. So the key thing is not to look at this as a shameful thing, to look at it as a medical symptom and to talk about it. I think that's the most important thing I learned and I would hope people would learn from this podcast. Well, and from reading your book, which oh. will be released in May. And I'm, I am looking forward to it. And so, Dr. Samuels, how common are situations like this? It's very common. Uh, I think, as uh, Elizabeth pointed out, uh, this has been around for a long, long time. And uh, for, for many years, people didn't know what to make of it, considered it a normal aging uh, phenomenon. But uh, it's, it's extremely common in one form or another to have a disinhibition of a deeply rooted beliefs and feelings when the brain is damaged in many different ways, including, including but not exclusively, Alzheimer's disease. And so are there physical changes that occur in the brains of people with dementia that would explain those behavioral symptoms like inappropriate sexual behavior? Yeah, it, it's uh, it's best summarized by the work of a famous neuroscientist named Paul McLean, who's now deceased, sadly, but uh, uh, made the argument that the brain uh, was really three three brains in one. He called it the triune brain. A good way of thinking about it is a piece of uh, imagine a piece of fruit, let's say uh, a peach. And in the center of the peach, of course, is a pit. And around the, the pit is the meat of the, uh, of the fruit. And at the, round, at the top is the skin that comes around the entire part of it. Well, it turns out as the brain has evolved over millions and millions of years, it has evolved a more, a more of these superficial uh, 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 layers. So the core in the center of it is uh, what he called the reptilian brain, the brain of a reptile, which is in us, it's called the hypothalamus. It's the part of the nervous system that does automatic things for us, such as heart rate control, blood pressure control, pupillary reaction to light, and so on. We don't have any control over that. That stuff is completely subconscious or unconscious. That's done by the, by the pit in the, uh, in the peach. Then around the pit of the peach is something that we call the limbic system. Limbic means the edge, and it was named by Paul Broca, the very famous neuroanthropologist who's famous for his description of language disorder, aphasia. He called this the limbic lobe, and then Paul McLean said it's more than just the limbic lobe. It's a whole system of connections in the nervous system. We're going to call it the limbic system, and the limbic system, which is the fruit of the peach, is our emotional life. It includes uh, anger, fear, sexual activity, appetite, defecation, urination, so on and so forth, right? And then on the, t on the very surface of the peach is the, uh, uh, is the skin, and that's the cortex of the brain, which has various lobes of its own, each for a different purpose, like vision and hearing and feeling and so forth. And we have a big, giant frontal lobe in the front. And as uh, Elizabeth pointed out, uh, that frontal lobe is the part of the cortex which inhibits the limbic system from doing its thing. So the natural thing to do, as you know from animals, 
is to eat when they feel like eating, sleep when they feel like sleeping, and have sex when they feel like having sex. That's that's in our brains, hardwired, and it's our frontal lobes and their development that inhibit that and stop us from doing that. It's our socialization. And so when a disease comes along, whether it be stroke or dementia, like Alzheimer's disease, it takes away the inhibition over the limbic lobe. And what you're seeing in her dad was an uninhibited part of the brain, which was normal and natural at a certain point in life, but not uh, as, an, as an older person. It's antisocial, you would say. Well, why do some people with neurodegenerative conditions like Alzheimer's disease develop those inappropriate sexual behaviors while others with the same disease itself don't? Well, the, uh, the main disease that we're talking about here is Alzheimer's disease. That's the most common neurodegenerative disease that causes dementia. Dementia is the loss of cognitive function enough to interfere with your activities of daily living. And that disease is, is regional. It starts in one part of the brain and then it spreads. So every patient is actually quite different. The average patient with Alzheimer's disease starts with memory trouble and then naming of things and then getting lost when trying to find a way around uh, well-known environments. But there are all sorts of variations on this. And one of the variations is this frontal type. In fact, there's a sub subtype that even has a name, and it's, uh, it's, it's called PICK disease, P-I-C-K, named after the inventor, the discoverer of the pathology in this disease, in which the frontal lobes are first and most prominent. And uh, disinhibition like this is... Uh, is very common. In fact, the second most common of all dementias is what, are, what is now called frontotemporal dementia, one version of which is what used to be called PIC disease. So it's actually not that rare, but it isn't always sexual behavior. It can be overeating or undereating or urinating in public, uh, things which were socialized away as our brains developed in the first year or so of life and have come back. It is in a way going back to childhood, as people, as many people have said about dementia. The way you both describe it, it seems very physiological. And when a person has dementia and they lose some of that inhibition, that it, it really is a symptom of a disease and not this taboo topic or stigma that people experience. And so my next question is for both of you, and I'll start with you, Dr. Samuels. But so this behavior that people may consider inappropriate, uncomfortable, taboo, it's a challenge for many family members and caregivers. So how can they respond to these situations they find uncomfortable? Yeah, this is a very, very tough problem. And uh, what uh, Elizabeth so beautifully describes here is the agony of the family member who sees the person change. And uh, she discovered this early on, as she told you at the beginning of this interview. Uh, that people change in ways that are very hard to describe. And it's, it's, not, it's as if you're not, you don't have the same parent that you used to have. Uh, and that's very tough to, to deal with. Uh, it isn't always sexual behavior by any means. Some people become violent when they were very pacifist in their, in their normal uh, life. Uh, and many other abnormalities that uh, are released by the, by the death of this part of the brain that does the inhibition. 
the only the, the only thing I can tell you is the best way to do it is to just repeat oneself over and over again, realizing that there are different kinds of memories that you might think the person has a normal memory, but they probably have an abnormal memory system for when sexual activity is appropriate in our society. And so all you can say is repeatedly, it's very frustrating, of course, because they, they don't retain the memory. But uh, no, Dad, this is not something that we do uh, to, ha to have a person come in uh, to have sex with you. That wouldn't be appropriate. And uh, after a while, pe people, many people become unmanageable uh, because they become violent and uh, actually dangerous. They can become dangerous. As you heard Elizabeth talk about warning the, the, the most recent housekeeper about this. Um, and uh, then, then sometimes it's necessary to use medications to, to settle people down, mainly, mainly to, to protect other people. And we try not to do that, as you know, as a geriatrician, because these drugs are toxic. They cause all sorts of side effects. And uh, it's you know these are these are chemical straitjackets, and uh, it's it's not really appropriate if you can avoid it. But it's realistically, it's not possible in many people to to always avoid it. And I'm going to ask you in a few questions about medications too. But going back to you, Elizabeth, you know what would you say to family members who might be in, experiencing some of the things that you have been through yourself? Well. Someone asked me recently if I had known what was going on with my father at the time it was happening, how would I have behaved differently? And I think the answer is I wouldn't have behaved differently at all. I, I really loved and admired my father and I had to treat him with respect. I, I just could not, uh, I just could not treat him any other way. And it wouldn't have mattered anyway. He was immovable. He, he was living in a world that was really, I experienced as absurd. The conversations that we had about this were, were absurd. I would say, Dad, this is illegal. Don't you understand? It's illegal. Remember Anita Hill? And, you know, it, and he would say to me, what about geishas? In some countries they have, you know, there was no talking it through and nothing that I said would have made any difference. But if I had known, I would have felt so different, differently. I would have understood that this was beyond, this had nothing to do with who he was as a person. This was completely beyond his control. And, and I just, I just would not have suffered. But I couldn't have changed it, but I wouldn't have been tormented. Thank you for sharing that because that I think is a really valuable lesson for caregivers. There are times where you cannot change the situation, but you can change how you feel about the situation. And for caregivers, that's a very valuable thing as they are the ones who are, who are really quite important in a person with dementia's care overall. Um, so I think that is a really valuable insight. Thank you, Elizabeth. You know, I wonder too about education for family members and caregivers. And I guess I'll, I'll go back to you, Dr. Samuels, for this. In your, in your clinic experience, you know, what types of education did you provide caregivers or family members wondering, what can I do, maybe not to take away the behavior, but just reduce how often this is happening? 
Well, in our department, uh, we created a division of cognitive and behavioral neurology, which is a which is a field of neurology which is now spread pretty much all over the country and all over the world. These are people who are neurologists or psychiatrists or uh, sometimes both who are particularly interested in cognitive problems such as, but not exclusively, Alzheimer's disease uh, and behavior that's associated with these cognitive uh, changes. The division, our, our division, and many of these divisions in major uh, medical centers offer programs for caregivers to help them learn, uh, as you were trying to do with your webcast, the biology of this and to understand what, what Elizabeth has come to understand over a very painful and long time, which try to accelerate people's knowledge of what they're dealing with. And uh, uh, as, as I said, very often what we're doing is treating the caregivers because as of this moment, unfortunately, we don't have a disease-modifying treatment for Alzheimer's disease. We do, however, have uh, treatments for other kinds of dementia which interact with Alzheimer's disease. And the most important one is cerebrovascular disease, which is the coronary disease of the brain. And uh, what basically the rule is what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So exercise is very, very useful. Uh, treating cholesterol hypertension, lipids, uh, all of that is actually helpful for the brain. And we teach people how to use those to release some of these energies, including this sexual energy, in a way which is less toxic and antisocial. And I suppose that those recommendations can help caregivers stay strong too, as they're providing care um, for the person with dementia. You know, I want to go back to the question about medications, because this comes up a lot in a, in a neurology clinic, a geriatric clinic. I suspect many family members have asked you in your time to prescribe medications to reduce the behaviors, or as family members might say, make them go away. You know, how do you respond to those types of requests and, and what has your experience been with them? Well, I think it's a, it's a, first of all, it's a reasonable request. And as I said earlier, uh, it's, it is sometimes often necessary at a certain stage of these diseases to use some medication to help. It's no different really than uh, any patient asking you about medication for any purpose, right? So if a person came to you and said, I'm feeling anxious, could you just uh, prescribe an endless supply of, uh, of lorazepam, which is a benzodiazepine drug? You would, you would respond, I'm happy to prescribe something uh, for you, but let's talk about how these drugs are used. And really, lorazepam is a drug that you would use only every so often. And in that context, it would be perfectly safe. But if you uh, overuse it, you could get yourself in a lot of trouble, and it could be worse than the disease. And that's exactly the way to handle it when the person is talking about their father or their uh, sister, whoever it is. Right, it's the same considerations exactly. It's not that we would withhold medications. I think that that's that's been overdone. Right, it's not fair to patients and to uh, caregivers to to let people suffer when we have something that can help them. But what we want to do is is to help them and not make things worse. And uh, that's that's the way to consider it. 
Now, prior to our podcast, we've spoken about this lack of conversation around the topic of sex and dementia. And a part of this topic, or part of this discomfort, I should say, is the stigma that's associated with people with dementia being sexually inappropriate. So I'd like to ask you, Elizabeth, can you talk about this stigma, your experience with it, your conversations perhaps after your father passed away, and what really needs to be done to help people and their families? Uh, I, I think that there's one thing that I haven't mentioned, which is important and would be useful to say, which is that there's a taboo between of a taboo about thinking of our parents being sexual. We just don't want to go there. It's really a strange taboo because we wouldn't be here if our parents hadn't been sexual. However, Later in life, when this happens, the taboo is really makes no sense at all. We're only trying to be helpful and caretaking of our parents. So you have to really force yourself beyond this taboo. You have to overcome your own resistance talking to a doctor about it or uh, just confronting it, which is something that in the book I just completely failed to do. <laughs> so. I'm no model of what one should do here, but, you know, as soon as the topic came up, I just wanted to change it. And I did talk to many of my friends about it, many of whom are psychiatrists. My husband is a psychiatrist. My whole social world is psychiatry. Nobody had a clue about this. Nobody suggested dementia. And they all had parents who'd had similar experiences, a mother who used to strip at dinner or you know, a, a father whose language got very coarse, and everybody just wrote it off as as natural and changed the subject. So I think the key thing here is accepting that it is natural, but not in the way we've been thinking, just because it's a brain deterioration that comes later in life and should not have a stigma. We just have to overcome our own hesitancy and uh, then you are relieved to discover what you've been avoiding. The news is good news. I mean, I, I reviewed, viewed it as good news to learn that my father had had dementia. The behavior wasn't going to change, but seeing it in the right context is key for the person who's trying to be helpful or just suffering while they watch it. And Dr. Samuels, you know, that stigma exists among healthcare providers too, or this, um, this, this discomfort in wanting to ask these questions or address them when they come up. Do you have any suggestions for those of us in the clinic or accompanying our family member to the clinic and how to uh, address it respectfully, but make sure that it is an issue that's brought up? Yes. Uh, uh, well, you know, Nate, uh, as a doctor yourself, that, uh, that, uh, there's a whole range of, of knowledge within the medical profession and including uh, non-physician medical people uh, about uh, these matters. And that's why we have continuing medical education courses. So uh, every year we give an update in uh, neurology for non-neurologists and another course called uh, Intensive Review of Neurology or Updated Neurology. And in it, there are always talks about uh, Alzheimer's disease, frontotemporal dementia, and uh, the issue of behavior change. So um, 
There's no doubt that the experts in the field, the cognitive and behavioral neurologists and the neuropsychiatrists, they know about this intimately. Uh, it's true that, 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 it need, uh, that other people need to know more about it, and the best way is through continuing medical education courses, but the, uh, the word is spreading. I think uh, right now, if you were to test American doctors uh, and ask them, are you aware of behavioral changes that happen in older people? Uh, they would say yes, and it probably is insipid uh, in, uh, dementia. Uh, that's that's probably the at, at the problem. And then I guess I would say too, then Elizabeth, your book is sort of like community continuing education. So sh sharing the word among non-professionals about this important topic, and and being able to do it, you know, with humor as you're you're doing with your book. So I want to thank you both for coming on Dementia Matters to really talk about this sensitive topic, but important topic. And I know I look forward to reading your book and hearing more about these tales that you've you've told. And, uh, and I appreciate your clinical insights, Dr. Samuels. You're welcome, Nate. Nice to be here. Please subscribe to Dementia Matters on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. And rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private university, state, and national sources including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Bashir Adin. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters.com at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.